Well, it's good to be with you here. Uh, this is Dave Durand, and we are on the Dave Durand Show. We are talking today about a topic that it's a, it's, I, would, I would call it a little bit surprising and sad that we have to talk about, um, but we are going to talk about it. And it's the idea uh, that so many people, particularly young people today, are confused about socialism. Now, I, I want to tell you the genesis of why I'm talking about this. Years ago, I posted on my YouTube channel uh, a third-party question. Somebody asked, they said, my friend believes that he can be both a socialist and entrepreneur. This actually, this question, Nico, you've seen it. It's come up a couple of times, actually, in some of the work we've done. It has, yeah. And one of the reasons, because this is in in educational uh, systems right now, uh, higher education, funny term, higher education where they're promoting this. And uh, anyway... Uh, the answer to the question was a pretty quick no, and I explained a few reasons why. Well, I got a ton of comments, and these comments were pretty direct and telling me that I don't understand entrepreneurship and that I don't understand socialism, both of these. Um, and so uh, I wanted to address this a little bit more because it's a, it's a, man, I tell you, it is a topic that gets people pretty fired up. Now, the angle that I came from wasn't socialism versus capitalism. Um, It wasn't any of these things. It was, can you be a socialist and an entrepreneur? I'm going to handle it primarily from that angle, but uh, I'm going to bleed into a little bit of the capitalism versus socialism sort of thing. But I want to begin with just what the church says about this. In fact, you can just find this even on Wikipedia, which I'm not always a fan of the credibility of Wikipedia. So let's just kind of review a little bit of what the church has recently taught about this. Um, in 1971, Pope Paul uh, VI wrote in his apostolical letter, um, he said, about Christians and socialism, too often Christians attracted by socialism tend to idealize it in terms which, apart from anything else, are very general. A will for justice, solidarity, and equality. They refuse to recognize the limitations of the historical socialist movements which remain conditioned by the ideologies from which they originated. Uh, Pope John Paul II, he went on to criticize socialism in 1991. In his encyclical, he wrote, The fundamental error of socialism is anthropological in nature. Socialism considers the individual person simply an element, a molecule within the social organism, so that the good of the individual is completely subordinated to the function of the socioeconomic mechanism. Socialism likewise maintains that the good of the individual can be realized without reference to his free choice to the unique and exclusive responsibility which he exercises in the face of good or evil. Now, I can go on here, but I'm going to stop there and just go to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The Catechism uh, says in paragraph 2425, the Church has rejected the totalitarian and atheistic ideologies, ideologies associated in modern times with communism or socialism. So the Church has been pretty clear about this. Now, people are attracted to the idea of socialism because, as Pope Paul VI wrote, you know, they have a will for justice, solidarity, and equality. So they have this tendency to believe that, you know, this is the type of thing which can be good um, when it is, in fact, not good. So let's remove some of the naivete. Now, I will tell you, and this is going to sound pretty, pretty harsh, but it's okay because it's just a fact. If you are a person that has gone through higher education and you believe in socialism uh, as more effective than capitalism, or you believe that socialism is somehow 
being a socialist and being an entrepreneur somehow cohesive, you are willfully misled. Now, you might be ignorantly misled, meaning that there were a bunch of false statistics that were showered in front of you, and they were said by a person with a certain amount of authority, and therefore you, in ignorance or naivete, believed them, okay? But that's a hard thing to do because there's all sorts of factual data everywhere to show otherwise. Most people who believe that socialism can work, in my experience, I want to limit this to my experience to to not... To, to not condemn most people in general, but most people in my experience are willfully stupid about the topic. Okay. I ask myself, can I say stu- willfully stupid? Does that even sound unchristian? But I, I hear, I hear Bishop Barron all the time say that is a stupid idea. Okay. So I'm just going to go with that. It is. It's a stupid idea and they're willfully stupid. And why? So they might be intelligent. They might be smart. They might even be, you know, desire certain amounts of good, but they're willfully stupid on this particular topic. Uh, here's the analogy. If you went to an Ivy League school and there were a physics professor and the physics professor said, uh, it is a fact that lead balloons can fly. Let me show you. And he took a lead balloon and he tossed it uh, in the air and it fell. You'd go, well, that doesn't seem right. He said that they fly, but it, that just doesn't seem right. And it didn't fly. And he goes, see, proof that it flies. And then he would do it again, over and over again. And and you would go, well, that just doesn't seem right. And he said, well, no, it is right. You'd go, well, he's supposed to be smart and he's a professor here i'm paying for my education and i won't get a good grade if i don't believe that that lead balloon flew and he says and all over the world there are tons of examples where lead balloons fell which proves that they fly that's socialism there is zero evidence anywhere that socialism has ever worked it never has which is why there's nobody ever building walls to keep people from coming into socialistic uh, or communistic regimes they build the walls to keep people in okay But in a free society like the United States, we have people from socialistic and communistic uh, countries flooding in here as fast as they possibly can to escape it. Now, still, that does not convince the person who's received a higher education who has been told socialism is good, capitalism is bad. So I want to just address this more from the entrepreneurship side right now, and we'll go directly to that. By definition, You cannot be both. An entrepreneur defined this way, this comes from the Oxford uh, little Google search here of definition of entrepreneur, says a person who organizes and operates a business or businesses taking on a greater than normal financial risk in order to do so. So this is an entrepreneur. They're an owner, okay? They own the business. They take the risk. Whereas a socialism, it says it's a political or economic theory. Now, since we're not talking about the politics of it, we're talking about the economic theory of it in relationship to entrepreneurship. A theory of an organization which advocates that the means of production, distribution, and uh, exchange should be owned and regulated by the community as a whole. Okay, so by definition, that is not an entrepreneur. So the answer to the question is, can you be a socialist and an entrepreneur? No. Now, I suppose technically a person could say, and somebody tried doing this, they said, well, what about Mark Zuckerberg? Mark Zuckerberg is an entrepreneur and he is a socialist. I suppose technically... You could say, I am a socialist, and you could advocate for political social policies and then run a business as an entrepreneur, but you can't run the business like a socialist, even if you are a socialist. Now, Mark Zuckerberg, in his own words, by the way, in front of the Senate floor, actually said, I am a capitalist. So he denied being a socialist. He said he's a capitalist. So even that isn't true, but people will say that to try to make their point. But what people really do when it comes to being an entrepreneur or a socialist is they get into this idea. They say, well, you could have a worker cooperative and that would 
That is exactly socialism. It works great that way. And sometimes they'll actually use ESOPs as an example. Now, if you're not really that familiar with the economics of a business, now you may not know or the finance of a business, what an ESOP is, but basically it's an employed own, employee-owned business. Generally, the way these things happen is an entrepreneur actually starts the business and then they sell it and they sell it back to their employees. When they sell it to their employees, their employees are usually vested over a period of time. And over that period of time, they receive now shares of that company that they now work for. And those shares are in proportion to their income, generally speaking, or their level in the organization. And then when they receive profit sharing at the end of the year, it is in accordance to or relationship to the position and the income that they have. That is nothing like socialism. It's employee owned, but being employee owned doesn't mean it's socialistic. In a worker cooperative, there is an equal vote. Every single employee owns the same amount and every single employee, uh, worker really, every single worker owns the same amount and all of the workers have an equal vote, which means there's no leadership there. See, socialism enters into societies in a pervasive way and it's a long run now the main difference that people will say between communism and socialism is that communism is communism is forced upon you with an overthrow immediately socialism is kind of willfully accepted by the people as an uprising that doesn't that's just not true socialism never really ultimately becomes fully socialism until it's capitalism or excuse me until it's communism and it has to be forced. so for example fidel castro was like this oh we're going to get rid of ownership and everybody's going to own things equally it's going to be great and he once he overthrows uh with these idealistic ideas cuba he basically strips away land ownership and he says well we need food so the farmlands are everybody so everybody show up monday morning and go farm go pick the crops nobody showed up why because it just runs against human nature. People won't do that. So what did he do? He forced people to do it. And what happens when you force people to do it? You have rebellion, you have poverty, and everything else. Which is why there's so much poverty in socialist um, societies. Just like, like It's just an unbelievably high level. So let's get into this a little bit more on the co-op side, the worker co-op side. First of all, there are only, according to the most recent statistics that I can find, and I am interested in what's true, not interested in what statistics I can find to manipulate an idea. I really don't care about that. The truth is the truth. So if somebody can find some 2024 statistics for me or 2023 statistics for me that change these, you can send them to Dave at leadinggiants.com and I would comment on those in an upcoming uh, episode. But the most recent thing that I can find goes back about three or four years on the workers' co-ops. And I do have more contemporary information here on uh, employee, uh, or excuse me, on capitalistic, just overall financial uh, data. And so there might be a relationship with these two, between these two, admittedly, because COVID was during the time that some of these other statistics came out and whatnot. But here's how it plays out. In the, there's only 612 known uh, worker cooperatives. Okay, why? Well, first of all, there are tens of millions of independently owned and operated entrepreneurial companies. Okay, tens of millions compared to 600. Right there, you can know that this is where what socialists try to do is they tell you you're wrong about your intuition. They, that's what they have to do. It's, it's built on a lie. They enter through educational systems. They enter through, you know, within our own government, they'll try to get in there too. They get into entertainment. They get into um, business. And the reason why they want to be in a business is they want to strip ownership. They want to strip hierarchy. They want to strip authority. Now, what happens is 
if you have these co-ops, the 612 co-ops, and by the way, 88% of them were startups from what I can uh, gather. This goes back a few years. 12% of them were actually traditionally owned organizations that were transferred into a co-op, but the rest of them were startups. Why? Because they don't last long. They just, they go in and out of business, if you would call it that. Now they'll tell that in, in worker cooperate, uh, co-ops, the average worker earns $19.67 per hour, which is two times federal minimum wage. And they'll get very excited about that. Um, which means if there was a co-op worker that worked full-time, 50, years, uh, 50 weeks a year, they'd earn $39,300. Well, $340, okay? Uh, that's what they earn. That's it. Now, if they have some profit in the organization, they might be able to get a little bit of that. Uh, there are very few profits in these organizations. And I read a stat, and I don't know how current this is, that the average profit was $6,000. It would take them to $45,000 if they received that. Now, in the regular capitalistic society, and this comes from Forbes Advisor just recently, uh, the average person earns $59,428. So the average person. So these are kind of an apples to apples. This one says the average worker in these environments and the average worker in these environments. The average worker in that environment earns 39300 The average worker in the other environment earns 59428 That's $28.34 an hour. So well beyond the $19.67 in the worker co-op. Now, the argument that the worker co-op is going to have is that, well, in capitalism, you have radically high executives compared to entry-level workers. Uh, in the co-op, it's a two-to-one ratio. The highest person is only paid twice what the average person is. Well, that means that the highest paid person in the co-op is earning $78,000. Okay? $78,000. $78,000. Now, the argument that they might say is when you give the $59,000 average income that Americans have um, and the $28 per hour, that, that includes the average of these astronomically high paid CEOs and whatnot. But that really doesn't paint the picture because 50% of Americans make over $39,000 a year. 50% of Americans make over what the average person in the worker uh, cooperative earns, okay? More than that, though, they want to earn more, okay? There are some people who live a simple life and um, earn a very little money, but most people say, well, I need to earn more. I'm going to have more children. I'd like to buy a house. I would like to advance in things. I'd like to pay for college. I'd like to go on a vacation, Okay, I'd like to contribute more. I'd like to give more. So therefore, I need to earn more. Well, if you're in the co-op, you're peaked out at seventy eight thousand. End of story. You can't get much further than that. Now, admittedly, there may be some co-ops where the numbers are are higher in some than others, but primarily they're not. These things get stuck and stalled out. Low productivity. You can't make decisions because everybody has an equal vote. So it's slow for things to get done. Nobody has ownership. Nobody's excited about it. Nobody goes to the next level because of that, because it runs against human nature. These are the things that get in the way. And, you know, you hear me say all the time, go be a giant. Basically, in Catholic terms, that would become a saint, right? You want to just be like this, like this person who lives to their full potential all the way. You can't be a giant in a co-op. Now, if you have, and by the way, I just want to be very clear about something. If you want to run a co-op and be in a co-op and you find satisfaction in your co-op, good for you. I make no judgment about that at all. And there are some that have a philanthropic type of um, essence to them where they find workers. There's a particular one that's the largest one in the United States, and it's in New York. And they are funded. Uh, I think they get government funding, but they 
they actually recruit people who would be otherwise unemployable to teach them skills to move forward. So I can see some good things that come out of that. I don't have a problem with it. The thing I have a problem with is trying to tell people that it is that that it's entrepreneurship because it's not entrepreneurship or that it's more efficacious than regular traditional capitalistic entrepreneurship, which, by the way, is littered with all sorts of challenges and problems, too. Okay, Um, but those challenges and problems become kind of regulated in a pretty uh, effective way. And the reason that they become regulated is because if you're overpaying the CEO and underpaying the employees, people are going to leave that organization to go to the place where the CEO is not overpaid and the employees are actually paid a reasonable wage. So it's going to actually balance itself out. It's going to take care of itself over a period of time. But you just are running against the whole idea of human nature when you enter into this sort of thing. And you can't really inspire people to be the maximum they could possibly be when they don't have authority, when they don't have a vote, when they can't stand out, when they can't individualistically rise to their greatest opportunity because they're stymied, they're, 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 they're held down by other people. This should be abundantly apparent, but a person who willfully accepts the lead balloon theory is just going to reject what I'm saying. The person with reason is going to understand it. They're going to do some research and they're going to say, wow, this is absolutely irrefutable. But people like to believe lies, and that's just one of the things that happens. Now, you will also notice that the further a person goes into socialism and to communism, the further they are away from a relationship with Christ. Why? Now, by the way, if you're like, no, I'm a socialist and I'm into God. Okay, fine. Then you just lack some understanding, and that would be true. But you will notice this, that by and large, people who adopt these programs do not embrace the truth of the gospel. They do not embrace uh, Jesus Christ. Now, could some of them? Yes, I, I can't judge all of them. But what I am saying is that by and large, the more you are away from this philosophy, the more likely you are to have Christian values and Christian beliefs, the more you're embedded into these, the more against them you are. In fact, clearly, Marxist philosophy, communist philosophy, socialist philosophy is antagonistic in every single way to the church. The church is its greatest enemy, really. And so this is just an important thing to keep in mind. Why? I want you to know this and to be educated in this so you can actually intelligently argue this from a perspective of charity with the people that you know, so that the nonsense can stop. Because the more this sort of thing happens, the more people are going to struggle and be confused when they go out there and they want to accomplish great things. Frankly speaking, any institution that teaches this sort of thing to entrepreneurs is not serving them well at all. And it makes no sense to put down a half a million dollars to be uneducated in any institution at all with things that don't work. Uh, when people are taught this and they, they, they graduate from those universities and become great entrepreneurs, they do it despite what they have been taught um, most of the time. Now, not all, not every institution is like this. I want to be very fair about this. There are many great organizations out there and even Ivy League schools, with great educators in them. And, and there's no doubt about it. But, but this is a very big thing and it's pervasive and people really kind of uh, adopt it uh, almost. It's funny. They say, oh, you keep your religion aside, uh, but they're more religious and more faithful to something that takes way more faith to believe than anything uh, otherwise. Uh, anyway, those that is my two cents on socialism and entrepreneurship. We'll be right back with the Dave Durant Show. Show. 
This is the Dave Duran Show with Dave Duran. All right, folks, this week we're taking a quick break from our regularly scheduled guest segment, and I'm actually introducing you all to a segment or a piece that Dave did uh, not too long ago called 100 Questions to Your $100 Million Business. Now, if you are a fan of this segment, let us know. Send an email to Dave at leadinggiants.com. Of course, this particular segment isn't necessarily for those of you who are wanting to start or scale a $100 million business. It could be your $10,000 side hustle, $100,000 side business, or your $1 million a year uh, primary business. Whatever your case is, whatever you feel called to specifically, know that these questions are here to serve that particular purpose and that end in mind. Now, uh, Dave is going to go ahead and take over from here, but I do want to go ahead and remind you all that we do have a guest coming up next week, and that guest is actually a former Navy SEAL, Sam Blair. Do your Googles on him. Check him out. He's got some great content online already, but we had a great conversation with Sam as to how his Catholic faith has played a role in being able to develop as a leader, going through Navy SEAL training. Of course, we know how difficult that sounds. I've never gone through it myself, so of course I say how it sounds instead of how it is since again I've never experienced it but I can only imagine and he talks about starting his businesses and the ways in which God is leading him in his business endeavors as well so stay tuned for that next week but until then check this segment out uh, you know this is an interesting question the question is actually about ups and downs and it goes like this uh, how do I manage both the actual and emotional ups and downs as a leader, is there a way to prevent them or to mitigate them? And that's a really good question. It's uh, generally the type of person who's gone through, through this. Uh, it's an experience question, right? So there are four things that I will give you on this that I think are very useful. The first is you have to have a routine. Order brings peace and peace can bring prosperity, but disorder and chaos cannot bring pos- prosperity. They cannot bring peace. You just can't have anything with that. Uh, what happens here is, and I'm going to give you all four of these um, because I'm going to intermingle them. First thing is routine. Second thing is you have to have hope. And the next one is you need to have resolve. And the last one is you have to live a good life. So they come together. Your routine is how you live a good life because it strengthens you and gives you hope. So for example, what happens is you're going to have a constant battle with yourself. And whether or not you see this as actually a spiritual battle, which I happen to do, I see it a natural and a spiritual battle. It doesn't matter if you see it the way I do it. You would definitely, you'd experience this, whatever you believe the source of it is. But you're going to have that version of yourself saying, don't do the hard work, take the easy path, do the wrong thing. And that version of yourself, no, do the right thing. Just simply on exercising. I don't feel like it. I don't want to do it. Don't do it. You don't need to. You can do it tomorrow. It doesn't matter. Oh, you should do it. If you don't, it's going to be a problem. Get going, get going, get going. Whichever one of these voices you listen to more, you become subjected to that voice. You become under the authority and control of that voice. So what happens is you say, don't work out. Okay, I'm not going to. And you don't work out. You're one day weaker. You're literally physically one day weaker. You're one day mentally weaker. And you've started to establish a very dangerous thing. And it's the beginning of a vice. You go to the next day. You don't do it. You're physically two days weaker now. You're mentally weaker. You are two days closer to a vice. 30 days in, you have a vice. You are definitely not in shape. Your body would feel it way harder. You've established a habit. And you also know what voice you're going to listen to. The same is true in the opposite. If you actually hear that voice that says, I should work out, and you do work out, and you go for it, you are one day physically stronger, you are one day mentally stronger, and you are, or you're going to be able to do the right thing, you're going to 
follow through and you are now subject to that voice because you have built the opposite of a vice. You have built a virtue and a habit and that allows for good behavior. The other thing this does is it brings hope to you. So your business, I always remind people that leadership is like being stoned to death by popcorn. Okay, you if you expect to be a leader and wake up and go to some fancy office every day and have people knock down the door and say, hey, here's a great thing that's happening and a great tie. It's just going to not work. Okay, what's going to happen is people are going to go problem, 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 solve problem, problem. Your problems are your friends. Not that we want to go out and create problems for ourselves, but that without problems, we're not relevant. The reason you have your job is because there's a problem. There's a need for a product or a service. And that's a problem. There's a need for more people, so that's a problem. Get more people. They need to be trained. That's a problem. They need to be organized. That's a problem. You need to raise money. That's a problem. These problems are why you're significant. So we should embrace the fact that we have problems and then build a routine. The person who wakes up and operates emotionally, they just follow their emotions wherever they have. They're going to fail. So you have to wake up and you have to begin discipline and say, at these hours, this is how I start my day. I start my day with peace. But best way to start your day. If you wake up and you roll out of bed looking at your phone, you, it's a disaster. Start your day gathering your mind, getting yourself centered into the place that you need to be so you can accomplish good things. You create literally the, the, that environment and great things are going to begin to happen. Now you say, I start my work day at this time and you commit to it. In these hours, I do these first things. And it shouldn't be checking email. Your, your job title is not email checker or Facebook checker or LinkedIn checker. That's not your job. Your job is to do something substantial. I call it TTP in the AM. Influence, talk to people in the morning. You influence people to get things started. That's the best way leaders do things is they influence people in the morning. Okay, you're going to have people on your team, influence them, get their heads right, get them moving in the right direction, then deal with the other strategies. Because frankly speaking, if you get their heads right, they're going to deal with the strategies themselves and you've got things happening. So set in a routine and follow that routine because that consistency makes you more predictable as a leader and predictability for a leader mentally, emotionally and strategically is a very, very good thing. So you build in routine. Routine provides hope. Why? Because when you have routine, you start to make progress. And progress is one of the most important measurements to inspire people. There's all sorts of things that inspire people. When people recognize progress, good things happen and they have hope for the future. The next thing is resolve. What is resolve? Basically, it's a fight. That's really what it is. And the reason I don't say positive attitude is positive attitude isn't really a fight. I mean, positive attitudes aren't really what make the world go around. I mean, I like them. They're good, but they're really not the key to success. You don't have two soldiers in a foxhole when a third one goes down going, you positive, yeah, I'm positive, let's go. That doesn't happen. But you have resolve. Okay, resolve looks like rocking the 15th round. Doesn't always look happy, but it moves forward. It's willing to take a punch and give one. So you need to go and fight against. By the way, it's not the whole world is a fight. And it's not conspiracy against you and everyone is your, your battle. But you're fighting against mediocrity. You're fighting against laziness. You're fighting against uh, quitting, you know. So you've got to get up and fight with resolve. When you're resolute, you get things done. Doesn't always look positive, but it moves the needle. And the next thing, the last thing is live a good life. I'm telling you, if you want the ups and downs to go away in your, in your business, you've got to live a good life. If you do not live a good life, you're hard to be around. People don't like people who don't live good lives. Generally speaking, there, there might people who live equally bad lives as them might like to be around them. But for the most part, they're not attractive. So live a good life. What does that mean? It means this. Start in your own world, your own heart of peace. Be honest, forthright. 
Okay, be trustable, be loyal, do the things that matter that way. Start in your own life. You're going to make mistakes. This isn't about, oh, you had to have been perfect in your life. Maybe you've been horrible at this point, or maybe you're, you know, 80% there. Fine, just keep moving there. Get to the place where you're living a great life. Okay, you are honest. Dishonest people don't like honest people. Because they remind them that they're not honest. So they lash out at them and they usually blame them and they they accuse them. Lazy people accuse other people. It's always what they do. Okay, you're going to take these negative reflections about yourself and you're going to project them on others and you're going to create ups and downs like crazy in your business. Live a good life. It's that simple here. Here's one of the ways you recognize people are making excuses. They They want to go to Africa to feed the children, but they're going to watch people in their own home starve and they're going to walk over their starving neighbor. Now, I'm not saying nobody should go to Africa to feed people. I absolutely think that's an awesome idea. However, if you're the person who walked over your family member who's starving and walked over your neighbor to go to Africa, you probably just did it for the Instagram or the Twitter or the Facebook moment so people can think you're amazing. It's called the meter, the mile and the marathon. If you're willing to run a marathon, but you're going to skip the meter or the mile, it's probably not actually a marathon. It's the illusion of a marathon. I don't trust people who say I can run a marathon, but won't run a meter or a mile. If you show me you're running a meter and a mile, then I think it makes sense to do the marathon. Otherwise, I just think it's smoke and mirrors. So live a good life. Bring peace in your home so you can bring peace to your neighbors, so you can bring peace to the workplace. Then you can bring peace to further places. If you start chaos here, you want chaos there. People who want chaos in the streets, they have chaos in their own lives. You cannot have a prosperous business that doesn't have ups and downs if you can't take care of your own self. Be honest. Seek what is true about you. Seek what's true about others. Seek what's true about the circumstance. And if you build in that routine, you have hope, you have resolve, you get to live, live a good life, you've absolutely without question diminished the amount of ups and downs that you're going to have. This is the Dave Duran Show. We'll be back in just a moment with our Q&A segment. Welcome back to the Dave Duran Show. This is our Q&A segment where you get to ask the questions and we answer them. Send your questions to Dave at LeadingGiants.com. Dave, this one comes from Stephanie. Stephanie writes, I've been working as a freelance writer and editor for several years, enjoying the flexibility it offers. Uh, Recently, I've considered expanding my freelance business into a full-service content creation agency. However, the thought of scaling up and managing a team is daunting. How can I transition from a solo freelancer or, as some would say, solopreneur to running an agency? And what are the key considerations for managing growth? Love the question. Now, she doesn't sound like she's asking it in despair. So I need to answer this question according to the tone that she is answering it, which sounds like she's doing pretty good. She's enjoying it and she just wants to take it to the next level. I have a lot of admiration for that, but I'm going to insert here what I hear mostly from solopreneurs. And it is, I left my job because I wanted to work for myself. I had this fantasy of what it'd be like to be an entrepreneur. I became a solopreneur. For those of you who don't know, that means that you're an entrepreneur by yourself. You don't have any employees. You're doing the whole thing. And now I feel trapped. Basically, I went from the pot to the kettle. I thought I'd have freedom, but I don't have freedom. And the reason I don't have freedom is because if I'm not earning the money, it's not being earned here. And now I am reporting to all sorts of clients and customers, and I have to manage all of the responsibility myself. I feel trapped. So two things. I love entrepreneurship. I completely advocate it. 
I do not believe everyone is called to be an entrepreneur. Some people actually do that. There are a lot of people, you'll see the gurus online that basically say your life is not worth anything unless you take the risk and you open up a business and it makes your value good. If you're an employee, it's bad, which by the way is short-term thinking because duh, if you're going to run a big business, you're going to have employees. And how in the world can you say there's no value to being an employee? <laughs> there's only a value to being an entrepreneur. Frankly speaking, you've heard me say on the show before, but it's, a, it's good to repeat here. My father, the man who I admire most, would have never been a good entrepreneur. He was a great employee, a very happy man, and was highly productive in society and raised five great children. By the way, can I say that if I'm one of the five? It sounds a little self-complimentary. <laughs> Four great children and one to still be determined whether he is or great or not. And, uh, and, and I'm glad he wasn't an entrepreneur because it just wanted to fit him. Um, anyway, some people are called to it, though. But there's this trap in between. Solopreneurship is very difficult uh, oftentimes for people in life. But here's the good news. You don't have to stay there. And the leap from being a solopreneur to an entrepreneur is not actually that difficult. Now, again, back to Stephanie and her question, which seemed not quite as problematic. It wasn't like strained in it. It was like, hey, I'm enjoying my life, but I want to make it to the, take it to the next level. Um, okay, first of all, it might seem daunting, but it's not really that daunting. There's a couple of things you can do. The first question you have to ask yourself is, what are the roles and responsibilities that I have that somebody else could do? In other words, when you're a solopreneur, you're doing a, a combination of uh, entry-level work and advanced work, okay? Dale Chihuly is a great example of this, okay? So he, if you're familiar with his glass blowing, he is a tremendous artist, and it's a little bit like you're, you're writing, right? Uh, you're, you're a freelance content person, right? I've got that right, Nico, freelance content? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so anyway, the reason I use Dale Chihuly as an example of this is because he was glass blowing. He was doing a very unique, very particular, I am the talented, skilled person who does this type of thing, an artist. If you've ever gone to Bellagio in Las Vegas, you've seen his work there. It's all over the place. But he actually was injured and was unable to continue to blow the glass. And he built a company worth tens of millions of dollars where he delegated out the glass blowing. But he was the artisan behind a lot of this. And he, he worked with people to get this sort of thing done. And his brand really took off and was pretty tremendous. The reason I give that example is because there are very few things harder to delegate than your own particular art. Now, you can build any business, but there's freedom that you will get by reducing pride and increasing open-mindedness. The pride is the thing that gets in the way for most people. Now, Stephanie, I'm not saying it's you that are suffering from this, but I will tell you 99% of solopreneurs suffer from pride. They say, nobody can do what I'm doing. Well, first of all, many of the things you're doing, like your accounting, like your books, maybe following up with a customer with an individual thing, emails, all sorts of things somebody else can do. So the first thing you do is you look at every single thing you do that's entry-level work and you hire somebody at entry-level compensation for it. That's a pretty easy thing to do. One of the great first steps for this is to basically say, okay, I'm going to pay somebody, you know, so many dollars an hour who would be happy to have this job. And I'm going to give them 10 hours worth of responsibility. That 10 hours worth of responsibility increases your ability to drive the revenue and lifestyle in your work in many different ways. First of all, it could just be 10 hours that you can enjoy, but it is likely 10 hours that you are going to double down and build your business to a higher level. Now what you're going to do is you're going to increase that person's responsibility to 20 or 30 or 40 hours, maybe full time. 
and you now have reduced your workload by that amount so you can do the particular thing that you know how to do that requires your particular expertise. Now, the more that you do that, the more that additional responsibility is going to come in. So you may end up having to hire two or three people. But what's happening is you're hiring two or three people at those entry-level positions, but your revenue is going to go up exponentially higher in relationship to that expense, generally speaking, when you do this the right way. Now, you can also mentor those people so that they can be around you enough to manage some of the responsibility that you have on a particular level, i.e. your skill, or you can afford to hire somebody with that skill that you have and to be able to operate in your name. And there are ways that you can do that because you're putting you're basically your imprimatur on uh, or your Dale Chihuly uh, signature on the work that they're doing because you're approving it. And it's written with the essence of what you're talking about and what you're doing. This allows you to exponentially move further. Now, a lot of these people don't even want to be a solopreneur or an entrepreneur that you're going to hire. They just want to write and they would do it for if they could have the freedom to say, oh, I don't have to deal with any of the other responsibilities. And I could have a lot of autonomy here by working for somebody else that's not going to control me or anything else. They'd be, they'd be thrilled to have that opportunity. So now you're slowly ratcheting your opportunity to get to this level. Why is this important? Because you can do, you can do two different things right now. You can produce the product that you want and not be there. And you can administrate the product that you want and not have to do it. You literally now could go to a very beautiful tropical island for a week while your business is actually not just being managed, but growing. And you can ratchet this up time and time and time again. It is a very calculated, low-risk um, movement into the future. Now, here's the thing that people do that stops them. They say, nobody can do what I can do. Nobody can manage the books like I can manage. First of all, that's just utterly deceived. Yes, they can. Tons of people can. And I have so many examples of I've gone to, to solopreneurs and entrepreneurs, and I said, I can find a 19-year-old person that never went to college to do these 70% of what you're doing. And they know you can't. Yes, I can. Boom, I find them. And then they, they don't challenge that again. Now they're like, okay, I get it. You can. Um, but the other challenge is that you might not find that right person right away. So what people say is it's so hard to find someone you can trust. It's so hard to find a good person. It's just so hard to recruit. Well, now you have to look at what are your leadership skills. Because, sure, this is a thing that can be a challenge, but it's really only as hard as it is for you to be able to produce a good opportunity to lead. I actually have a video in one of our Leading Giants programs where I actually say, hey, there are four reasons that you can't recruit and train, develop people. And the first one is people don't like you. And I know that sounds hard, <laughs> harsh, but it is true. You have to be likable. You have to be adaptable. You have to know what it is you're selling when you're selling an opportunity and you have to sell something worth value that that person actually wants and they want to take to the next level. So there are ways that you can do this. It's not quite as complicated as you would think. And I'm just going to encourage you because it's right around the corner for you and you already sound happy. I mean, just the tone, I'm reading into it, but the tone that you have is not urgent. It's not frustrated. It's generally like kind of a, hey, things are good, but let's make them better tone. And I think that's going to actually serve you well when you do try to recruit people, but treat them, treat them the right way, give them authority, give them autonomy and give them the resources to succeed. And good things are going to happen. Great question. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Great answer too, uh, Dave. And uh, the, the jump from solopreneurship to entrepreneurship, I think that's a great thing that's often underscored here, especially in today's day and age. 
Uh, Patrick sends a question. He says, Dear Dave, I've been working in the corporate world for over three decades. I felt that I've been missing something and feel like I never lived up to my full potential with a job compared to jumping into entrepreneurship. I have a passion for my faith, sports, and networking. I want to start a business that reflects those values, but don't know where to start from product research to hiring and building a team. I'm also unsure of how to make the leap from a secure corporate job to the uncertainties of entrepreneurship. Should I make the leap and how do I go about doing so? Dave? So this is a related thing, a very similar type of question, but this person is actually going from the uh, employee role to then into this entrepreneurial role or solopreneurial role. Okay, there's a couple of different things that I would say on this. Uh, The first thing that I would say is when you talk about your Catholic values, okay, what a lot of people do is they start to think that they actually have to have a Catholic company, sell a Catholic product, sell Catholic t-shirts, sell Catholic coffee, whatever it is. You don't have to do that. You can sell cameras, books, doorknobs, shoes, anything with the Catholic mentality. And that is to be a good steward of what it is you have to provide honest, fair, good opportunities to have a transcendental company, meaning that your company as a, is attractive. The transcendental desires of goodness, truth, and beauty, and also unity and love are part of those, are all in great cultures. So you can actually exude a Catholic essence within your organization without ever talking about Catholicism. And that is one of the greatest ways. When you look at a sunrise, the sun doesn't come up saying, I'm Catholic. Okay. But it says I'm beautiful. And if I'm beautiful this way, why am I so attracted to this? Why do I desire this? I must desire unlimited, perfect beauty. That's actually what you start to do when you build a good, true, and beautiful organization, particularly with unity and love. So you can actually do that that way. Now, the first thing that I would say is you have to measure this. There are ways you can measure this. And, and one of the things you do to measure is you ask yourself, okay, if I'm going to leave where I am, who's involved in this? Do I have a family? Are they at risk? How much money do I need to save in order to make the leap? How long is the leap? Do I have a viable, good, proven product that is already establishing traction? So I'm leaving into something that is actually kind of known that if I'm committing 10 hours to, because it's a side project, and now I commit 40 hours to, I'm going to be four times as good, four times as profitable, maybe even exponentially more because of it. If I put 50 or 60 or 70 hours into it, where am I going to be? And what happens if I do go over 60 or 70 hours? And how, how can I do that? Am I neglecting my other responsibilities to that degree? How long will it take for me to have a regular life again and to be able to delegate so I have a normal life that I can manage all my responsibilities, not just that particular role? And you measure all these things against each other. But the first thing you need to do is you need to know what's the product or service going to be and what's the vibe. I use the Southern California term, the vibe. Really, it's like the culture. What is that essence of it's going to be? When I walk in, are people going to say, wow, it feels like a nightclub? Well, minus the bad things that happen in the nightclub, but the vibe. Or is it going to feel like a morgue? Okay. And ironically, the morgue can have sometimes more happiness and more energy than the nightclub can. So maybe it's a poor analogy, but you get, you get what I'm talking about here before we cut into that too much. So the idea is you want to make sure that you've got a great culture and you think about those two things. What is the product service going to be? And what will it feel like to work there? What will the essence of that be? Why? Because the culture, as Peter Drucker said, your culture will eat strategy or culture eats strategy for breakfast. Now, if you have a great culture, you will have a great strategy. If you have a great strategy, but not a good culture, it will erode. Okay, so these are the things you want to consider and you want to look at 
before you leave. Now, there's way more to it. You can reach out to me at David Leading Giants if you want a further answer to this sort of thing. Um, but it's a good question to ask just initially and to give a, a bit of a radio answer to. Yeah, yeah. I remember my first job being at a cafe, Dave, and I had a great time. And the owners were Catholic. And I think this was a passion project post-retirement. Uh, but to your point, the culture there was great. It didn't feel like it was a Catholic cafe. It was just a great environment to be and you could tell these were devout Catholics, so it was, it was a great place to be. All right, and I do have a last question here for you, Dave, but before I get into it, I did want to go ahead and let you all know that you can send Dave your questions to Dave at leadinggiants.com, and he'll be happy to answer them. So the last question I have for you, Dave, is from Regina. She says, I've been a stay-at-home parent for the past 10 years, focusing on raising my children. Now that they're in school, I want to get back to the workforce. My question for you, Dave, is my gap in my resume is making it difficult to find jobs. And I feel stuck. I started listening to your show and heard of the great stories shared by many of your guests. Would you recommend I go into business on my own? I'm sorry. Would you recommend I go out into business on my own or keep searching for a job? Okay, it's a great question. And I really would tell you that I'm not qualified to tell you which one of these you should do unless I had a lot more information because I don't know what what particular talents you have that would allow for you to run your own business versus go in and be an employee. I can tell you this. I have had great success hiring stay-at-home moms into great employee roles, but also into entrepreneurial roles where they become like uh, kind of uh, subsidiary partners to what I'm doing and have done fantastic work. I mean, you think about when you're a stay-at-home mom, you are the chief executive officer of so many different things. You are managing inventory. You're managing personnel. You've got a custodial department. Of course, you're the head of that department. You have so many, but you have a team. You have so many different things that you're doing that so well pre-qualify you to run a business. If you look at it that way, a lot of stay-at-home moms, they kind of forget that unbelievably important high-level function that they are actually doing in the home, and they have a tendency to know, yes, I did the right thing. I'm raising my children. This is, this is where I should spend my time, and, and it's very good in that regard. But oftentimes, while they understand that value, they diminish what they're learning and mastering when they're running the home and how it does actually equate very much to uh, to running a business, so I would say that if you can if you can generalize those things, you're kind of a leg up. Just to keep that in mind, but um, you know whether or not you should be an employee or not. Really, you should ask yourself this question: You obviously recognize the value and the importance of raising the children. Okay, so what are you going to do that's going to give you the ability to continue to do that? Now, for the past ten years, you mean that now they're all eighteen and out of the house. That might be different, but if it's like for the past ten years and now they're all in school. You're probably going to still be there for sports and after school activities. And so you would just ask yourself that question. Can I find a job that provides for me the income that I want, the challenge I want, the opportunity I want, and also the ability to take care of the kids the way that I want to? I mean, this is one of these times where you say, how can I have both? Um, And maybe that is through an entrepreneurial venture, too. If you are very, very good at delegating. Now, I will tell you this. I absolutely know what this is like to work hard, to build a business while being able to pick kids up from school, okay, be at their games and manage all sorts of responsibilities. I have done this myself. And I know that for me personally, being an entrepreneur, because I was effective at it, I was, I was good at being able to delegate and build and scale. Now, the interesting thing is I will tell you this, you can learn this and you can master this and you can go from not having, this is kind of a nature versus nurture thing, right? You can not have these abilities and learn them and become effective in them. But there's no doubt about it. Some people have them 
more naturally inclined. And you can't take credit for that no more than you can take credit for your height. Now you can take credit with whether or not your height allowed you, you know, you used your height to become a good, good athlete or whatever, but you can't take credit for the height itself. So I will admit that I naturally was inclined to lead and to delegate and to be effective. And I think that that's an important thing to put out there just uh, so as to not to assume that just anyone can do this flippantly and easily. You may be able to run a great business if you're not naturally inclined that way and build it great, but you may not be uh, naturally inclined enough to do it so quickly that, like, I know I could start a business, basically, Nico, I could start a business right now in 10 hours a week. Okay, I don't advise that. Most people can't, and I know most people can't. Um, but most, many people can play an instrument that I can't play or learn a foreign language better than I can. It just happened to be my thing. I don't want to give the advice to entrepreneurs by saying the same thing because it's not the same for everyone, but it might be for you. Uh, so, so that's, that's kind of why I'm doing this. You want to really take a deep examination of how you can keep the things that are important to you while you move into this new venture, as opposed to trade them off and then regret that later on in life. Again, Dave at leadinggiants.com. If you want to know more about this, Dave at leadinggiants.com. And I could uh, give you some more particular answers or somebody on my team could. Well, that concludes another great episode of the Dave Duran Show here at Relevant Radio. We'll be back with you guys next week on Saturdays at 1 p.m. Central Time. Until then, God bless.